The Theonauts, episode 126. The one where I like my churches like I like my fries, supersized. The Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's Word. Hello, you Theo Omega Theonauts out there. <laughs> I'm David Gaddy. You want to try that again? Yes. Hello, all you mega theonauts out there. I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. And I'm Riley Neal. And together we are the The Theonauts. We have to yell now when we say it. Yeah, that's our our thing. Hey, it worked again. It did work. Two weeks in a row. Yeah. All right, let's not talk about that anymore. David, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Can't complain. Really? Busy. Yeah, you Working. are busy. Yeah, you got. Help. I guess I could complain. Yeah, but, you could. but it doesn't help. I mean, you've been doing that for like the past hour <laughs> while we've been sitting up here. So surprisingly, yeah, when the, yeah, the yeah, talk yeah. short starts, he doesn't complain. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Young Riley Neal's in the studio. That's right. What's up? Spring break. Spring break. What do uh, math and theology majors do on spring break? You tell me, Jeremiah. Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> on a Friday night, here he is talking about theology. You, you know the reason we have a different spring break than all those Texas schools, right? It's state schools. So you kind of abstain the from Baptists all the Baptists don't want us right. turning up with Texas A&M, uh, UT. And UT. They, yeah, want, they don't want you going to Austin. They want you turned party. up by yourself because that's pretty much For Theonauts. <laughs> yeah, turn up for Turn up for Theonauts. That's right. As he sips his water and gets into God's Word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So it's nice to see you here, Riley. Yeah. I started spring break today. I got out of school, skipping and jumping. Yeah, yeah, danced around a little bit. It was wonderful. So awesome. So you're all prepared to take a break by traveling and doing a revival. going back to <laughs> yeah back to Kansas. Yeah, tomorrow I'm going into uh, to Winfield, and I'm gonna start. Preparation for leading worship at a revival, which I have not prepared for. And uh, it'll be fun. So I'm excited about that. That's cool. Well, it's also your birthday. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So happy birthday, man. Thank Ah. you so much. Hey, you know what? I got you something. Are you serious? Yeah, hang on a second here. (laughs) You're going to give me something on air? Yes. What what is... Oh, that's so sweet, dude. (laughs) Okay, so for those of you visually inclined, not inclined, visually impaired, because you're on the radio, (laughs) and the Bible charts and maps, that's awesome. Okay, so there's this awesome thing called the Bible Project, right? Yes, yes. And uh, you should go check it out, by the way, and use it if you're walking through with small groups and everything. But what they do is they basically break down books of the Bible. They walk Mm -hmm. through the Bible, and they do this awesome drawing in the middle of it. And so Habakkuk has been our theme for the past week. Yeah, after we did this show on it last week. We can't get over it. We've been talking about it in our uh, shepherds meetings at church and uh, just sharing with people. And so David gave me a blown-up picture to hang on my wall of Habakkuk. That is so cool, man. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Such a sweet thing. 
Oh, it's so epic, too. And then the the Rose Charts and, and Timelines book is... It's funny, out of all the theology books I've got and all that, you know, I end up going to that crazy little chart book. It just helps chart book so much, yeah. So much because it condenses... Like if you want to see the timeline of prophets and kings and who was who served where and I mean that type of thing is just in there like there's all kinds of information crammed into a small space <laughs> and it's awesome. in a ring binder yeah. so you can use it with your youth and flip through and show mm-hmm. so awesome thank you David yeah. that's a blessing man I'll have to uh, take this with me on my trip and get in some Bible maps and charts reading time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. so are we ready to talk about this topic of ours? Hey, let's, let's do it. Let's go. So I guess last week, was it last week? It was just last week. Yes. That's right. We heard from Kenzie. Yes. And Kenzie said that she loved the podcast, but... And she was really interested in in the. Uh, we we were talking about the lack of young pastors. That's in right. The Barna thing, right? And uh, she was suggesting that it might have something to do with the introduction of mega churches these days. Right. So that got hmm. us thinking, spun up a little bit, pondering, and and excited about this whole idea of mega churches. And we thought that Riley would fit the bill for uh, doing this. So we kind of jumped on the topic this week. Of mega churches, nice. and we have Riley in to give us his professional opinion, and uh, and go from there as a young starting out pastor. Um, so, let's see, Riley, would you consider the church that you go to a mega church? Mm, that's a hard question. Uh, so here's here's my fully considered answer: yes, but it doesn't feel like one. Um, huh? In that. Okay. Um, so a lot of times when you think of mega church, you think of a seeker sensitive church. And in many ways, I would say that's probably not my church. Um, it's probably closer to what you're going to expect if you walk into a Southern Baptist church with a blend of contemporary and traditional worship. And it's just um, big. you have a large age range. I, I would actually say the majority of my church is older. I want to say our median age is um, in the fifties or something wow, like that. Really? So Which most mega churches kinda... are young, extremely contemporary, seeker sensitive. That's not really us, but I want to say we do have like over two thousand members wow. um, on Sunday mornings. So size wise, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, that's interesting that that you have an older age range, seeing as you are in a college town with a yeah. lot of college kids, and not just a college, but a Christian private school college town. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm kind of shocked about that. But so why would you consider it a mega church just purely on its size? Um, yeah, some of it's a numbers thing. Um, also, I mean, we have multiple services. Um, how yeah, many, I mean, how many services do you guys have a day? We just began our third service. Um, so you have two services um, in the main worship center, and then you have a third, more contemporary service concurrent with the second main service. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That's so that's cool. an interesting transition in itself that maybe we can get around to. The right. Mul- the multiple services the thing is a totally thing. different question. Yeah, do they cater to different audiences in the different services? We, this is So that just begun. Um, yeah, it used to be two blended services, an earlier service and a later service, and they were identical. It was a mix of 
traditional and contemporary mm-hmm. worship. Um, you'd have some songs utilizing more orchestra and some using uh, praise band. Do you think um, that that... But the service we just started is 100% contemporary. Okay. Oh, gotcha. So do you think that that puts you on the hot spot? To start out with just a thought, do you think that that's a good reason for splitting up into multiple services? No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't either. You know, whenever I was a kid, I watched this actually happen before my eyes. Uh, I was a member of a, a pretty big church. My dad was the pastor, and uh, so right around 200 to 300 people were coming, which was big for Kansas in rural Kansas, right? Mm-hmm. So dad gets this bright idea because this is what all the churches are going towards doing a contemporary service and a traditional service, Mm -hmm. having two different services, doing Sunday school in the middle. And, uh, his idea was to reach out and draw, be seeker sensitive, basically, you know, meet the needs of, of those around. What ended up happening was the fellowship was broken big time and it dwindled our numbers like seriously. There were a lot of people that stopped coming Mm -hmm. because of not connection. And so by the end of that grand experience, we were like at 120, 130, right? And it was was kind of a shock to dad. And he's like, I'm never going to do that again. (laughs) Like, this is the worst idea ever. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't, I don't see it theological or biblically from biblical standpoint. So for me, it's got to be like a definition question. So what, what is your definition of a church? Because for me, it's hard to think of, um, groups as a church, if they're not worshiping together, sharing the experience of worship, communion, um, listening to the word. Right. Those are like identity defining (laughs) things. And so, so if you have to divide it up, you know, to cater to different audiences, you're really two church or two congregations. I think a lot of mega churches actually end up being a hub of multiple right de facto congregations. Well, yeah, because that's one thing that I was going to talk about here is a lot of one of the things mega churches push more so than traditional churches is the small group life group type of of thing. Um, I was talking to uh, well, we remember uh, when we had Copper Lily. In, I was talking to um, to Tim Skipper mm-hmm. about their church there in, in I believe it's Nashville, and um, it's a really really large church. But they don't even really perceive it. They don't even really think of it in terms of all being one church. Like their life group is their main church, mm-hmm. and they only meet corporately with everyone like once a month. Like the rest of the time, the small oh, that's cool. the small groups is are the is the is the church, and then you come together and do a corporate worship with everybody, you know, once a month or so. Right. Which I thought was an interesting model. We'll see, but that once a month versus once a week, I think, really sends a different message. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're meeting on Sunday morning, um, for me, that kind of communicates this is what the church really is. Mm-hmm. Because Sunday morning, throughout the history of Christianity, that has is been the, the church. Right, that's, that is your church. Yeah. So it's you know it's an interesting cultural phenom- phenomena that mm-hmm. we have here in, in the United States, and I think that it goes back to the i the um, the thing. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said defining what church is. So when we think of church in today's culture, in fact, if you look in the book, it's a building, or in the dictionary, it's a building anymore, right? <laughs> right. The, the definition mm-hmm. of a church is a place where you go and worship. Once again, the dictionary's defining <laughs> or reflecting 
how Usage. people are using it. Right. So that yeah, so that makes perfect sense. I mean, people go to church. You can't really go to church if you think about it. Right. Because, because we are the church. Exactly. But this so, our culture <coughs> has has created that that mentality. Right. And uh-huh. that's not been something that's recent. That is something that was established way back when. Like before I think even America was founded. That was established way back in the day whenever we built these big cathedrals and made mm-hmm. them into these, you know, special well, buildings. And let's we'll stop and think about even the word Catholic. So if you think about how, how for how long ca- the Catholic Church was pretty much the only church. Christian church mm-hmm. and but the word Catholic meant universal. So that kind of makes sense from that standpoint of that they had this mindset of it's all one church. This, yeah, this universal. Yeah. The biggest mega church. church in history is the Catholic Church. When you think about it, does that make sense? <laughs> well, from not how even from size wise, maybe, but not as we currently define it. Exactly, because they don't operate the same way at all. <laughs> but let's go back and and look at this. It's a hierarchy. It's one big. Roman one you know, organization, one organization, mm-hmm. all under uh-huh. that banner. They they send out their own priests to different mm-hmm. parishes. They call them parishes, right? Right. Instead of buildings or churches, now they they have their own names, but it it is a mega church organization. It from a from a big standpoint, mm-hmm. just something to throw out there. I well, think, which well, is really one thing interesting. That I, I found interesting in looking at it also is that this seemed to start this this whole mega church idea as we see it now. Seemed to 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 start with the baby boomers. Okay, like that, that was recently. Wow, yeah, like that was really where it all kind of began, and which makes it very very modern. So we're talking sixties, seventies. Yeah, yeah, okay. or but fifties, sixties. About the same time that the youth, the idea of a youth pastor started, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that a children's minister started or a children's program. Programs and well, there were probably programs. They were just probably a lot simpler. Yeah, so that that whole mentality started. And mm-hmm. uh, what was the what was the goal then? I think it reflected our culture, which was consumerism, right? So what's the what's the driving force? Is a mega church? Did someone set out and say, "I want we need to grow our church to where it has a thousand people. No, we need to we honestly, need to do this," or does it just happen? I think it just happened because if you think about the baby boomer generation. There's a population issue anyway. That's why the the baby boom, I mean, there was a a large population explosion during that time frame. And so that makes a little sense of of how it would have come out of a population explosion. Hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah. Because I really don't think someone set out to say, hey, let's build a church bigger than anyone's ever seen before or anything like that. I don't think it really started that way. Spe- okay, so speaking of megachurches, we should go back to Charles Spurgeon, right? I wish I had his sermons right in front of me, but this guy starts out at tiny country churches, and he ends up, finally he's preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in yes, London, London, and it's, they have to they build a new building while he's there, and it's like 6,000-person seating capacity, unheard of. And Spurgeon preaches with no amplification right. to this crowd and he would tell people he's like i know some of you are coming from other churches because you've heard things about this church you need to go back home to your home church and serve and worship right. there and right and in fact i love his that mindset was, that so was cool. the event where the people were injured in yeah, the, the streets the, the mega church the mega church actually almost stopped him from becoming a being a pastor anymore because in the middle of one of his sermons one day a a, a uh, um 
what do you call them? A balcony, balcony collapsed, right? Yeah, yeah. Killed people. Yeah, and, yeah. Okay, maimed others. He's like went in serious depression over that. Mm-hmm. Like to the point where he was like, I'm, I'm just not going to preach anymore because I'm hurting people. Well, that was definitely before the baby boomer time frame. Right. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's what eight, I'm saying. 18, yeah. late 1800s. I think that this thing goes way back. But was, honestly. But was that... To Western a, culture. Was that, that a normal thing? No, that's almost a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was like a... So is Spurgeon. Right. <laughs> but, the, but the more in our culture, the, the idea is bigger is better, I believe. What's well, American... That's an American that's the, culture, but I think it goes farther. You think of big, culture. big business and all the other technological advancements that are happening in this century. It right. makes sense. It's the the idea is you want to be well, be the most su- success equals, and this is this is the biggest problem I ooh. think with the me- mega church. Success equals big. So mm. let's talk about this. So whenever, uh, and I know this firsthand from being in a a Southern ba- being a full time Southern Baptist minister for for years um i would go to an associational meeting uh and afterwards during the small talk the pastors would gather around and small talk and inevitably numbers always came up yeah who's who's got the biggest how many are you running right now well we're doing really good we're running over a hundred now yes which is awesome but, and that runs into all kinds of things like like we end up charting christianity Mm-hmm. Like it was never intended to be about numbers or anything. Like, I mean, if it was, Jesus wouldn't have been. You know, whenever the people started flocking around him and following him around Galilee, he wouldn't have been saying, "Hey, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood." You know, I mean, that <laughs> that, that was a tactic to turn away the ones who weren't serious. Like, right. I mean, he was he was narrowing the group and not broadening it. And so it's very interesting to me that we <clears throat> built a culture around. This idea that that success equals numbers, or followers, or you know retweets, right, or stuff like that, and so we have a successful pastor, right, and he's a guy that everybody puts up on the pedestal as mm-hmm. he's basically we've created a rock star position right. for a pastor because he has all these different people following him. So you got Francis Chan. Right, you have Matt Chandler. Yeah, locally here in Dallas. Yeah, you you have, um, I mean, all these different people. What's the Saddleback guy? Um, Rick Warren. Rick Warren. Yep, yep. You have all these mega church pastors who are mega superstars who write books, get book deals. Mark Driscoll was one mm-hmm. of them. John Piper, which is a really interesting person. I want to get to him at some point. But John Piper, there, there are several others. And so... I think Riley will find this, and I don't know if you find it right now, but in seminary, when you go to seminary, um, they're they're grooming you to become the next megachurch pastor. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. If you're going to have a successful ministry, millions of people are going to listen to you, and you're going to have a book deal. That's the definition of a successful ministry. Well, and and the numbers, even if it's not getting all the way up there, the greater the numbers, the more the success in a lot of people's view. So it's like, okay, if I've got a church of a hundred that I'm pastoring, my goal is to is to bring those numbers up to two hundred right. or three hundred or whatever. Not thinking about the fact that shepherding a hundred people is an impossibility. Is right, like in and of itself is difficult. And all your what you're wanting or aspiring to <laughs> is to try and make your life more difficult. Okay. And bring on more burden that you can't bear. Right. So the the question 
is do mega can mega churches really work or be effective on a spiritual level? Can they actually? Can they actually? Uh, well, I think that there are some pros. We can break that down it. a little more. Say, okay. How can they work, and how can't they yeah, work? Exactly. That? So I, I don't know. <clears throat> you want to talk about how how they can't work <laughs> to begin with? Well, let me go over these demographics I got first and okay. see if they bring up anything. All okay. Right. So now I don't know how accurate these are. I just snagged them off the internet. <laughs> that sounds great. You got Barna. Is Barna behind? Yeah, there, Barna's behind some of them. Okay. Um, but one of the, uh, I was just looking at what makes a megachurch a megachurch. What what are the th- the the demographics of okay. most of them? Okay, most of them have a young demographic, which makes hmm. Riley's situation unique. Right. Um, there are usually twice the number of visitors to megachurches than there are traditional churches. So. Is this like per capita? How are you, how do you count that? I'm not like, sure. Of course, there are more. Yeah, I'm not. Sh- I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they're saying, but I, I, I guess what, what they're maybe. saying is people are more likely to visit a mega church than they are to visit a traditional church. Sure. So, what are the reasons behind that? They're well, I visible. Think, I think exactly. I think a lot of that has to do with anonymity. You can walk Marketing. into a mega church yeah. and you can you might get a flyer, you know, or whatever an advertisement, but you're not probably not going to get bothered too much. And and then oh, you hmm. and then you sit down and you listen to the pastor and you connect with him in the service or whatever, but that's you don't have to go any further because more than likely you're not going to get an audience with that guy. Okay. But okay, so I'm just guessing. Um, here's another thing: two thirds of the of the members of most mega churches have been there for five years or less. Which that's crazy. It almost makes it sound like it's a revolving door. Is there a huge turnaround rate then? I guess if two thirds, five years or less, and these churches have existed for a while, then yeah, there's a huge turnaround rate. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like that mega churches are more multi ethnic than traditional churches. So more, mo- most traditional churches are going to be black or white or Korean or... That's something they're getting right then. Or That's whatever. Great. And so there are uh, more multi-ethnicity in megachurches. Um, here was an interesting thing. Members of megachurches seem to be sharers of the gospel more than traditional churches. So like in their daily lives, they seem to be more evangelical. In their practices, members of mega churches are more evangelical. Yeah, which that surprised me. I yeah. I, I kind of expected that to be the other way around. But um, uh, here here was an, an interesting one. The bigger the mega church, the more conservative it tends to be. So, and we talked about this a little bit before the show. And I I've never really. I don't know if that's right or wrong though. No, that's definitely true. Let me let me show y'all something I was looking at yesterday. Just well, second. to play devil, devil's advocate, the biggest mega church in the United States is Joel Osteen's church. <laughs> he's not exactly liberal. He's not exactly, <laughs> not exactly anything. Yeah, he's not really he's, conservative. He's, he's much more, uh, I would say he's much more liberal than he is conservative. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a lot more name it. Well, and, and that you bring oh, that that's up. That's not liberal. That's but prosperity. Prosperity gospel and, uh, and, and liberal... Uh, in politics, go hand in hand. Honestly, yeah. okay. This is this just reminds me of this thing I was looking at yesterday. Okay. Um, I um, I'm not sure where I got these statistics, but I screenshotted them a little while back, and um, 
So 50% of <clears throat> 50% of clergy from declining churches agreed it was very important to encourage non-Christians to become Christians compared to 100% of clergy from growing churches. And you have a lot of similar statistics mm-hmm. where church growth um, is linked to being conservative. Mm-hmm. And it's I, I think the point of the article was kind of about if your movement is exactly like the rest of the world, no one's really interested in it. It's not right. like... Yeah, what's different you, about you? Yeah, it's not movement. unique or it doesn't have like a defining identity. Well, and plus people by nature crave, unless they have been um, beat up in church, you know, a lot of people are damaged by very strong-willed, conservative, uh, stomping preachers and all that sort of thing. But you've got this, uh, this other side of that coin where I think it's human nature to desire structure and to desire, um, you know, uh, some, Guide, some more guidance, and I think that probably has something to do with why um, that's a true statistic. Huh. Um, I find it strange because just coming from the background of a small church, I've always been a member of a small church. In fact, very small at some points. Right. And we would demonize large churches all the time. Like everybody would be constantly like, hey, all those people, they're just... Teachers having itching ears. I mean, all these quotes from the scriptures that come out, you know, it's like they're just heaping upon themselves because they don't have to do anything and it's an easy route and blah, blah, blah. And so everyone kind of I mean, yeah, throws them under yeah. the bus without knowing what's going on in that Yeah, and I imagine church. most of your megachurches are going to be center right. So there are far right small congregations that are going to be, you say, oh, they're more liberal. But right. I think most of them are going to land in that, that spot. Right, right. Quite interesting. I, I don't know. All right, so going back to what what uh, what's positive about a megachurch yeah. or what can make a megachurch work and what's negative or what, what makes a megachurch not work, I think the definition goes back to this idea of success, right? So I'm going to keep harping on that because for me it's very interesting. You can tell a pastor's heart really quickly, and not just a pastor but um, the leaders of the church – when they're more focused about their brand or, you know what I mean, about their, you yeah. know, their numbers than they are about spiritual growth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what makes a megachurch work and what makes a megachurch fail? What do you think? Well, I think there are some, here's some of the positives from just outside looking in. Um, resources. Oh, yeah. Megachurch is full of resources that can be used for this stuff. And that's, and, they're, and they'll promote that. Sure. Um, the so like attendance and finances, uh, going back to my chart here, are a lot higher in mega churches than they are in traditional churches. Right. Looking at like Willow Creek, Bill Hybels, attendance twenty two thousand, average budget thirty six point two million dollars. Yeah. Imagine what you can do with thirty six point two million dollars. But what do, what do they do with? Yeah, that? and see that's the, the question. That's where it gets a it's a blessing and a curse. Okay. Because uh, like one of the things that um. You know, we're talking about outreach and mission work and all that sort of thing. Uh, man, the hole in the go- the hole in our gospel by Richard Stearns is such a it's such a uh, a slap you in the face type of book because what he pulls out all these statistics about what it would take to actually to really cure world hun- hunger, and the numbers, although they are huge, are not unattainable. In fact, if two percent of the tithe in America right now was dedicated to 
solving the problem of world hunger, it would work. But the problem is that's not where the money's going. So the money is usually going to promote growth, to promote attendance, building more facility, basketball courts. There's bowling alleys in some of these churches, theaters. Yeah, uh, coffee shops, mall. Basically, the lobbies are malls. Right. And with bookstores and everything else. And so, like, well, in, in the book Radical, David Platt talks about that, uh, that whole concept because he had just come from China right. and just got this brand new job as a pastor at a mega church and was shocked whenever he went to the first meeting and they were talking about whether or not they should build another basketball court or not so that they could get people to come. And he was like, the people in China were fighting to come to church knowing that they might get arrested. Yes. And it, <laughs> it's interesting, uh, his argument. Um, I think he's more of the missional it didn't stop him from being a mega church Organic. pastor, though. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so he saw some value in the mega in church. those resources, right? Right. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. So, granted, they use those resources to draw people in. So, most of that, if you would look at a pie chart mm-hmm. of where those resources go, uh, besides salaries, which would probably account for half of it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the rest would be in in building or maintaining the building. Right, uh, and then outreach. Right, so very little of that sliver goes to actual missions. Yeah, or you know, feeding the we'd call it benevolence. <clears throat> but you know, at the same time, it's working. It draws people mm-hmm. in, and they hear the gospel. And in America, that that might be okay because people are very consumer driven. Mm. So they're interested in things that have children's, you know, churches that have large children's programs and churches that have large youth programs and churches that, um, you know, have a coffee shop in the front so you can go and get your espresso. And then I, I was really, okay. So three weeks ago I, I visited my, my brother who lives in Kansas city and he goes to one of the, I guess you'd call it a mega church. It's a, uh, it's a church plant mm-hmm. from one of these mega churches, but they maintain the same name. Okay. Mm. Village? Uh, no, it's not village. It's you know vertical church. Mm-hmm. It's it's a church plant from vertical, um, and I forget the name of the actual church, but it's based in Chicago. Breakout of Chicago. It might be Bill Hybels. I might be thinking. Hmm. Is that it? You were just reading about him. <sighs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> now I have to look it. <laughs> Maybe up. he's just on your brain. Anyways, long story short, I, I walked in that place and I was absolutely amazed. Beautiful facility, right? And by the way, they're getting rid of that facility, and they're they don't know where they're going next. Mm-hmm. But they're trusting God to provide. But they have a huge amount of resources to help them out. Um, they're they're part of this whole idea of the big launch model. So you have basically a mothership a mega church, right? And it launches different churches all over the United States and uh, in other countries carry the banner name, but they have different pastors and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they send teams out to build churches is the idea. And I, I love that idea. It's a great idea. Um, part of it. Anyway, so I was amazed walking into this place at, they, they, it was so organized. They had greeters at the front door who immediately shook my hand and said, welcome. So glad you're here today. Is there anything you need? Let me show you around if you need, you know what I mean? That, that right. kind of a greeter. Right. Um, they had a 
they had a coffee bar with free coffee and donuts and all that stuff mm-hmm. right over to the right. They had, on the left, they had the children's registration. So I took Blakely in, you know, and I got her registered in the nursery. And they they took down all my information, gave me a number in case there was an emergency. There would be a, a number flash on the screen and tell me my child needed me, you know, in the service, which is kind of cool. So I take her and I immediately <laughs> drop her off at this beautiful state-of-the-art nursery where everything's perfect I leave and I go into the main service where I'm able to just walk in and sit down and the music is perfectly uh, like in tune and you can tell professional grade. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's just like, it's perfect. They're lights. There's, there's actual... I mean, they use lights. Yeah. And then Taylor Swift came out on stage. Taylor Swift came No, I'm joking. But <laughs> everything was perfectly orchestrated. Yeah. I mean, it was a show. You right? see, and that's what... I don't know. If, th- th- I don't think that's a good thing. But I mean, all these... I, yeah, I was going to take issue with something you said earlier about getting people in the door. I had to read... I read a, I read a book um, last summer. It was called um, Deep and Wide by Andy Stanley. Okay. And I would recommend checking it out Andy for the Stanley. for the sole yeah, purpose right. <laughs> of this is like the if there's one book that defines the mindset of the American mega church right now perfectly captures it that is the book it is uh, I want to say probably the second largest church in the country um, well his so- second to Joel Osteen's honestly church. his daddy is probably one of the architects for the modern mega anyway mega so church. so Charles Stanley right yeah I've so, been to his church to so, his pulpit it's pretty cool Anyways, and, Andy Stanley yeah and deep and wide um, he gives you his philosophy and this book I was simultaneously putting like check marks and X's in the margins because I would agree with one sentence so much and then disagree <laughs> with the next one so much and so and the reason it was so frustrating is because I totally share his number one ideal which is we need to reach non-Christians and we need to grow our churches by evangelizing non-Christians instead of just getting transfer growth from other churches. Right. right? And so I'm with him on premise number one, which is his bedrock. But then he goes to the second one. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? And basically the, the argument of the whole book is you need to tailor your, you know, your worship service, your children's ministry, your furniture, building, greeting team, all these things just need to be tailored to non-Christians having a great experience on Sunday morning and wanting to come back. See, and that's the problem with the idea of what our churches are. So yes. what is the church? Well, in, in, from what I read in Scripture, <laughs> going all the way back to the Bible, uh, it says there, let everything be done for the reason of edification of the saints. And that, that, is, that is the primary purpose for... Are congregating together is discipleship. Yes, it's nice when people come in that they have a good experience or, or that they will want to come back. But in my opinion, e- evangelizing is supposed to happen outside the doors of those churches. hundred percent. You don't invite people to church to be converted. And again, we're using that whole sit down at a word. table with people yeah. and study the scriptures with them outside of church. Don't don't rely on your pastor to be the guy that's going to take your friend to salvation or to Jesus. You can't invite people into the church. They're born into the church. And that's the <laughs> good, problem. Good. The yeah. the reality is is we have in our mindset, well, if I'm going to get this person saved, quote unquote, mm-hmm. the best thing to do is I can I can do is invite them to church where they'll hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um and 
while that might be a okay thing for you to do, that is not that's not the definition of what the church is supposed to be. In its in its basic premise, according to Acts, I believe the idea is the church is this this brother and sisterhood of believers who connect together, um, build their lives together, disciple one another. And then and serve and s- others, and then then go out from that right. to the world with that message. Well, and then bring other people in once they've and through connected through with the message. Corinthians total messing of things up. We get this this one passage in First Corinthians fourteen where Paul is trying to straighten up their mess, and in doing so, he kind of gives us a little insight into this congregational meeting. And, and he, he says, like, he does address visitors coming in. But his address to that is, don't be making a bunch of confused, don't do a bunch of confusing things so that if strangers come in, like as if statement, if strangers come in, they won't think you're mad. Right. And so, so but then he turns around and says, but, you know, you, you need to make sure that everything is done in an orderly fashion so that people can gain something from it so that there can be some edification. Right. You can build one another up in this process. Yeah. So the church exists. The, the church is the bride of Christ, which exists to edi- edify mm-hmm. each other, you know, to disciple one another, to to be uh, faithful, and then, and then go out and spread the gospel yeah. outside the church walls. Yeah, I think out... Outreach is supposed to happen outside the doors of the church, in my opinion. So I think that's a good question for, is this a healthy megachurch or is this not? You have to ask the question, are these people being discipled to do their ministry in their lives? Right. I think that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a pretty good core question. And if we look at the statistics here, it seems that megachurches, though, are succeeding in that. because Some of them. Because it does say that, uh, that they're bigger sharers of the gospel <clears throat> than traditional well, at least in the survey that was done. Well, here's my question about that survey. What what are the? I'd I'd like to see the actual questions. Yeah, and I whenever I, people I are like, do that. Uh, I don't know. This is anecdotal. I'd love to see the actual questions because usually when somebody's sharing the gospel, it means they're inviting people to church <laughs> in America. Right. Uh, right. So for mega churches, that means. I'm proud of my church. It's way cool. Check out our YouTube style worship. Come and join us and listen to this. And yeah. that's their evangelism. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. They're not evangelizing with their life or with their you know, with their day-to-day friendships mm-hmm. in their uh in their communities making connections in their service one to another. Exactly. I and mean, the- you want people to ask the reason for the hope that is within you, right? Because right. Peter says, be ready. Whenever yeah. people ask you that, uh, you can give an account. So why would people ask you that? I mean, that is why exactly. you have to exude so this in your daily life. I found a, an amazing article by Ed Stetzer uh, about church planning, and he's kind of like a guru in church planning. Um, you can read his blog. It's called The Exchange. But he gives six different models for church planning because usually church planning, the idea... <laughs> Uh, most most church planning happens with mega church style people mm-hmm. now. Um, so you have the traditional model, which is you go to a place, you you know gather a couple people in, you start a you start a church and you build on that, right. that premise. That's the old school way of doing things. You have Sunday school, that kind of thing. You have the big launch model. That's the church I was at. 
right? Where the idea is, okay, we have all these people we connect in, and actually it works, I think, because you get people in and connected, plugged in, and serving the church, and then you send them out to different areas to start their own churches. Gotcha. I think the missional uh, incarnational is a smaller model of that, which is the idea you start your own, you're missional minded. So everything you do is is with a purpose of missions. Mm-hmm. So you go outside the church and you build community. You teach people about Jesus through your life and through your community, your small groups, and then you bring them into the church as they, um, as they, you know, follow Christ right. or choose to follow Christ. Organic house church is the exact same thing, mm-hmm. which is another idea of just going out. And the idea, the idea here, though, the difference is they like small church. So anything bigger than, say, six or seven families, they go out and start their own house church, and there's right. no building. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's Frank Viola's whole yeah. model. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the multi-site satellite church, mm-hmm. which is the one that I, I think I disagree with the most. Have you guys ever watched that awesome, <laughs> the Mark Driscoll, I forget who the third guy is, but it's Mark Driscoll, um, Mark Dever, and another pastor <laughs> debating multi-site? It's like... It's from those elephant talks that are like impossible to find anymore yeah. because they're so controversial. <laughs> right. But it's so good. You need to watch it because Mark Dever is talking about his church resists this um, idea, this uh, multi-site thing. And the others are just like blasting him for it left right. and right. And he's like, look, from churches that I have, my church has started and then those churches have started, there are like 50 churches and 50 pastors leading them. His his point is I'm not indispensable. Um, yes, and this whole yes. this is this is a movement so much bigger than my church, and that's right. what I, I I think that that the multi site satellite model creates the uh, the idol worship that is megastar hmm. pastors. Yes, and that is to me it is idol worship more than anything else. They. Uh, <laughs> They're they're put on this pedestal of being this awesome uh, man of God just mm-hmm. because they're great orators and and know how to use right. great you know. And the flip side of that is what happens to the church when that guy dissolves. So if that guy uh, dies, is injured, quits, you know, whatever is fired, there is some sort of big Mark Driscoll style. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> thing exactly. That That's a great picture. What happened to Mars Hill? Yeah. Well, they're still didn't there. It, didn't it become a bunch of smaller churches? <laughs> exactly. It became <laughs> a bunch of smaller way. churches the hard way. They didn't want to, but they had to. Yeah. And yeah. most of well, most of them did dissolve. Can your church survive some of them, this one guy leaving? Right. Some of them became this some of the satellites became uh their own yeah. their own thing. But most of them dissolved. Well, see, I, I, and I have a little bit of personal experience with the village because I've got some friends that go there. And, um, well, like Colin, he's been on the show before. Mm-hmm. He, um, he goes to the village and he goes to a satellite. He doesn't go to the actual one that, um, I don't understand how people connect that with Matt that. Chandler's That's just a head. personal thing. But, but he has, Matt will come there and visit or whatever. And he, uh, Colin said it's really super weird. He's met Matt Chandler one time before in a crowded room type of experience he said that when he saw him the next time, he shook his hand and, and said, "Hey, Colin, how you doing?" 
like he memorizes he he says he memorizes his uh congregation members that's and, super and, creepy well it may be creepy what? but so we're being offered waffles here on the show that's right this is great <laughs> Waffles. Awesome. I'll take a waffle. See <laughs> you nuts and waffles. Yeah, waffles on the nuts. So what were you saying? I, I, I don't that. know. I was just thinking about waffles. Okay. Yeah, it was I, about how how Matt Chandler is making an effort anyway, because this is one of the downsides of a of a mega church is a lack of a personal relationship yes. with with that pastor. How do you shepherd? Yeah. 4,000 to 20,000 to whatever people effectively. I think that transitions us into the next big thing. Maybe the biggest thing that we wanted to talk about. It goes back to McKinsey's email. Uh How does pastoral care work in a megachurch? And how does um, this concept of every member functioning work Mm. in a megachurch? Right. Well, and that's a good point because, okay, in the megachurch type of thing, you come in and just like your experience... You get to you got all these choices, right? You can pick your programs you want to to take part in. You want to do all this, but in doing so, this it's kind of a la carte. So it's an individual experience, right? It's not a collective experience. Well, they, okay, in a way. So I like here's here's a a reality. So I want to go back to John Piper. I said I get to him. John Piper, whenever he went to his church that's now, I guess you consider it a mega church. It's not like huge. Mm-hmm. By the skin of its teeth. <laughs> yes, by the skin of its teeth of the mega church. And and I think that's on purpose. I think it could be much bigger because he's a much bigger name right. than a lot of these yeah. other people. But whenever he went into that church, he went in with the mindset of I'm going to align my um my mission statement with this church's. Our church is going to align mission statements with me, and that is going to make our hearts connect and allow us to do ministry together. So he went in, and they they discussed and they talked about the mission statement of the church, which is we exist to glorify God by enjoying Him. He has this huge mission statement thing. So he lines the church with that, spends some time discipling them, and then raises up ministers within the church, mm-hmm. right, who take part with him in that. They don't go over like a thousand people, right? Right, right. They have like a, a ceiling. There's a break-off. And not only that, they're focused on engaging people into ministry for the glory of God and then sending them out, not housing them, but sending them out. So whenever Piper stepped down, which he inevitably did, um, and he's like a senior pastor emeritus, but whenever he stepped down, it wasn't some big, horrible thing. They had pastors who were working and teaching beside John Piper all the time. Right. And so whenever he stepped down, those other pastors just stepped up naturally. And not only that, but they sent others out and started their own individual churches. It wasn't uh, uh, an offshoot, and I can't remember the name so of the So it's kind of, in a way, it is kind of the Frank Viola model, but on a larger scale. Right. So you have this, 
you had this um, organic growth idea, but just on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and and I think that that if 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 that's the way it if that's the way you function, then I I think that uh, the church can't help but grow. But the idea is once it gets to a certain point, it's not about the name or the pastor. Right. It's about spreading the gospel for the glory of God and you know uh, well, equipping saints. Well, to go back to Riley's question that kind of prompted this about how do you uh, how how's a pastor's role or whatever in a church this big or how's he effective in it? Uh, it reminded me of this book that I just pulled out. Uh, I I listened to the to the author on a podcast one time, and it was like mind boggling uh, the things he was talking about. The book is called The Radical Pursuit of Rest, uh, Escaping the Productivity Trap. And he was, it, it, the whole thing is about how we busy ourselves and we're constantly busy. But his point was that he aims this message at young pastors and aspiring pastors because the point is, he says, they all have this mindset. I say all. The, they, they, in general, have this mindset of growth being about numbers and about... And and the, the thing is, like, you will work yourself to death and be completely ineffective the more people that you put up underneath you. And so as you continue to to try and shepherd a larger and larger flock, if you're all about growth and not about discipleship and not about, you know, focusing on the relations that you have, um, like, for, it's like he says that a new pastor should set his goal for that 200 or less you know, congregation. Right. He shouldn't have a goal of the mega church. Like that should not be what he's aiming at. Um, because and then what happened, and we've talked about this before on the show is pastoring just another corporate ladder. Yeah. Like yeah, you well, would it have, be, in it the, becomes like the Catholic church and you have this hierarchy. You have, you know, a pastor slash CEO who's over all these pastors and all these ministries. And there's an, yeah. unrealistic amount of right. pressure and Piper. And, and of course, you know, we're, we're big on, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, a multiplicity of leaders in, I, I think that's a, a, an important thing in a church. So it's not one guy trying to do everything. Plurality of leadership, I think mm-hmm. is the most, for me, it was the most radical concept ever. I'd never really thought of it because of what I grew up in, which was a Southern Baptist mindset of the head pastor does runs the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he has a youth minister or, you know, he has a children's minister or worship minister. Right. And he doles out those responsibilities. But when it but comes to still, pastoring, yeah. pastoring the flock, he's the guy. He's the guy. Uh, yeah. So the first time I ever came across this concept was actually at a church. It was 500, between 500 and 1,000 people at uh in South Carolina. And I really wasn't going to church at this time. It was my first year uh, on my own outside. I was in college and I was trying to connect to a church. And I ended up going to this ultra conservative missionary Baptist church with oh, a wow. Irish pastor. Like a Westboro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hardcore Calvinist uh, Irish pastor who I loved. He's an awesome guy. Anyways, I mean, it was old school church. But before that, I was church hopping, and I saw this one church, and there were four pastors. Mm. 
all called lead pastors, right? All sharing responsibility. One was a shepherding pastor, so he, you know, he took care of like hospital visits, that kind of stuff. Yeah. One, you know, so they had this, they split up responsibilities exactly, stuff, but they were all pastors, and they were called elders, right? Yeah. yeah. But it was a Southern Baptist church. It was the first time I'd ever seen that in the Southern Baptist church. I was blown away. Anyways, so, but it's so much more comforting to, number one, to a pastor, because you get so burnt out mm-hmm. with with being the head honcho. That's the reason that so many pastors leave the pastor well, in the that, first 10 years. Yeah, and, and the, the numbers on, like, mental breakdowns and that sort of thing among pastors is... Well, they have to be Huge. the superstar CEO. John Piper wrote a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. You can download it at DesiringGod.org. <laughs> um, but this is what he said. We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. It is not the mentality of the slave for Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence of the heart of the Christian ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. Mm, Amen. Yeah. For there is no professional uh, childlikeness. There's no professional tenderheartedness. There's no professional panting after God. You can't be a professional meek or professional (laughs) (laughs) humble person. But it's completely opposite of um, that culture's mindset. And, you know, um, I I don't know about you guys, but... I grew up with the whole mindset of you dressed up for church, put on your Sunday best, you know, and all that sort of thing. And even that smacks of that, in my opinion, a little bit. And I, I kind of got in a, <laughs> I was I was asked to preach at a um, at a revival one time, among several other preachers, and one of them was an older gentleman, and uh, most of us were wearing, you know slacks polos that sort of thing you know this guy's in a full-blown suit he gets up there and he's like i just want to point out the fact that the reason why i'm in a suit today is because you know if i was gonna meet the queen of england royalty i would put on my best and i consider you all (laughs) priests and kings just as the bible does (laughs) (laughs) and so um so anyway, I've got like the next sermon the next night and I'm up there. I didn't even bring a tie or anything like that, you know. So I'm up there in my slacks and stuff. And I was like, I just want to point out that the reason why I'm not wearing a suit is because I only wear them on two occasions, weddings and funerals. No one's getting married today. And I don't, I hope none of you are dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Dude, I, I, have I ever told you this story? It's crazy. All right. So go off on a tangent, but. <laughs> Whenever I was uh, about to be ordained, I had an 80-year-old pastor who I was serving under. I love the man to death. And uh, he's just amazing guy. But he uh, was very much of the mindset that if you're a pastor, you need to dress like one. <laughs> and right. uh, he gave a sermon, I kid you not, on the outfit of Aaron the high priest. <laughs> So let's go to the Old and Testament. said, wherever he went, that priest went, people knew that he was the priest because of where he, because of the ephod. <laughs> He's like, and that's the reason pastors should wear suits. I wear an ephod. It's <laughs> and wherever I go, people just immediately know I'm a pastor. <laughs> like this, this tie, those are the colors of the 12th tribe. Right there. <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> 
That is the most of a, I just sat there with a smile on my face because he directed the entire thing to me because I <laughs> half the time wear khakis and then polo or whatever. Right. And he knew that was about to be ordained, so he wanted me to know that I needed to go get a suit. Mm. Pretty much. Anyway, so this whole idea of professionalism it permeates our culture. And it it's the same thing with the the cultural well, success equals people. But there's a new or out, money. There's a new outfit for professionals oh, yeah. right and it's the hip it's the, the hip cool pastor you know that's right <laughs> it's a, like what babylon b was talking about handing out beard sculpting <laughs> it's like an outreach skinny <laughs> jeans you can pull yourself into there's a person i'm thinking of i don't know how much we get to name name <laughs> he's on the babylon b regularly <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Anyway, so yeah, bottom line, mega churches can be a good thing. Well, I if think they're it's done correctly. It's like anything else. I mean, uh, look at how Jesus addresses wealth in general, and we're all wealthy people here in this country. Yeah. As so, you but, eat your yeah, as I'm eating my waffles, your waffles, and uh, <laughs> so, uh, so you've got this this concept that. Jesus talks about how difficult it is for a rich person to humble himself into a position. And, you know, I'm sure you've all heard the whole uh, eye of the, ca- the camel going through the eye of the needle oh, type yeah. of thing. And, uh, and I've heard that explained as well, you know, in their dialogue, in their dialect, uh, the, the needle was the, was the small gate. gate in the, in the yeah. camel had to get on his knees. And it's all about humbling people. I don't know how true all that is, but... <laughs> But the but the point there being that whenever Jesus said that, the disciples go, whoa, 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 who can be saved then? I mean, this is impossible. And his response was, nothing is impossible with God. So in other words, it's not impossible to be wealthy, big, and et cetera, et cetera, and be a Christian. It just makes your job that much harder. harder. Yeah. And I think we can we can take that to the to the corporate level with a megachurch. I think that the job is harder, especially if you're a pastor trying to single-handedly, you know, uh, pastor all these people. Um, and I think that the, 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 there are benefits and there are all these things that you can do. So there are pros, but I think it's also really hard because the cons are, are really stacked up. Yeah, I think we can't romanticize either small or big. Right. Because whenever we, I mean, right now the current trend is to romanticize big, right? Big equals successful equals healthy, mm-hmm. right. all these things. But we can't romanticize small either because there's a whole different set of oh, problems. I mean, a I, lot of large churches have a pretty good time with change and right, with yes. um, new ideas, with a lot of things small churches can struggle with and they can't, they don't get entrenched in the same way. So I think we can't romanticize size. Yeah. We just well, have see, to look at those other signs. Of and health. I know a lot of small churches that are small because they are so legalistic and so uh, dogmatic in their understanding of scriptures that no one else fits the bill. And whenever they do get someone to come through their doors, then they go, what in the world is this? And they hightail it out of here. Yeah. So it's not always smaller is better. I think you really need to look at different gauges of success. So the idea is if you are a member of a church that is um, engaging people, equipping them, discipling them, and then sending them out, then you're a member of a great congregation. 
that's the definition for me of success. That's, that's I think the, the small group thing is very important to mega churches. If they don't have a good small group program, I think that they're in danger. I mean, I think they'll struggle a lot more. I agree with you because it's about connection. Mm-hmm. A church, the, the, the whole idea is community. That's the whole idea. Worshiping in community together and then equipping each other and sending right. sending out. That's the idea of a, a healthy church, period. So, I mean, you look at look at the church you're in, and is it doing that? If it's not doing that, ask yourself, why are you in that church? And, and if you're a pastor, instead of saying, I want to get to a thousand people, look at that ideal, this church that is worshiping together, doing community together, on mission together, mm-hmm. and say, I want, to, I want my church to do that. And if numbers are going to come, they'll come. Or if other church plants are going to come, or however that health manifests itself, it's going to happen, and God's yeah, going to give yeah, those that. Those aren't the goals. And, and you know, I just keep going back to, to Jesus' Jesus's ministry. It was not about growth. It was about quality. It was about discipleship. And, in fact, you know, people would say, hey, I want to follow you, Rabbi. And he would say, you know, I don't got no place to lay my head. Foxes have holes to sleep in, but I ain't got nothing. And, you know, I mean, those aren't inviting words. <laughs> words. It's not like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a great time. We're going to travel the world. We're going to get to see a lot of people. You know, I mean, it was, it was not. He was trying to deter people who weren't really devoted. That's right. So... All right. I think we've exhausted that in uh, we have in entirety, which is great. Okay, so do you have news for us? Yeah, uh, let's see it. And now the news. This is from Christianity Today: A two public baptism. Ex-Muslim loses lawsuit against church. I remember when that started. Oh, really? Yeah. What happened? Uh, I would probably I'll probably butcher it if I try to say, it, but something about. Him being baptized and the church making a big deal about it had family consequences. Oh, for I him, heard that. I want to say. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for three days, extremists tortured him. <laughs> Basically, okay. So uh, let's uh, let's go back. A uh, Syrian Muslim man converted to Christianity. He asked to be baptized by First Presbyterian Church in Tulsa. Pastor agreed, and he was in 2012. The man. Um, he had to keep his identity anonymous, uh, said the church promised to keep his baptism quiet since Sharia law demands con- uh, converts from Islam be executed, mm-hmm. right? He went to Syria almost immediately after his baptism in order uh, to marry his fiance. A few weeks later, while still in Syria, he was kidnapped by Islamist extremists, including his uncle and cousin, who said they learned about his conversion from a church website. Wow. The First Presbyterian uh, had included the, the man's website? baptism in its weekly bulletin announcements. I imagine they were just checking up on him yeah, or something. Uh, <laughs> then posted those announcements online. It was the first thing that popped up under his name on the internet search. They So... For three days, extremists tortured him, telling him they were going to kill him for his conversion. They tied his arms behind him and beat him, keeping him for hours under a 55-gallon electrified drum that shocked him whenever he touched it. Wow. <laughs> uh, when they took him out on the fourth day, they had the video camera out, and I this is from his um, perspective, and I knew that was my day. I was going to go. The man told the Tulsa world he managed to free his bound arms, then struggled with his uncle uh, for a gun. He shot his uncle, then fled. Wow. 
Mm. Just a horrible all-around story. I, I wonder why he decided to take it out in a lawsuit right. on the church. He That's the sued, strangest part. Yeah, so he sued the, the church in Tulsa for $75,000, cla- uh, claiming it was a breach of contract, negligent and out- outrage. Wow. Church asked for the case to be dismissed because the baptism was a constitutionally protected religious practice among other reasons why would the church respond that way yeah you know there's, if I there's, were the me- church? there's messes all around this thing yeah so weird and it, you know the story reminds me a little bit of um have you ever heard of bob pierce uh-uh. he's the founder of world vision oh, okay okay so how world vision got started was bob pierce was a missionary in china <laughs> and this kind of ties into what we were talking about, about it's not being about converts as much as it's about disciple, discipling people. So Bob Pierce is out there in China on mission and he's trying to convert as many people as he can. Right. And he converts this, this one little girl and she goes home and gets beat Mm. by her family for converting to Christianity. And so the next day, um, one of her family members carries her beaten, you know, she can't even walk, carries her to Bob Pierce and says, you did this. What are you going to do about it? And that's what made him realize I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. I'm trying to just get as many people as I can converted. And and then after that, whatever. And, and so that's what made him start yeah. actually discipling people, and that's what led to the formation of the, the nonprofit. So, wow. so it's kind of the same type of thing, it sounds like. I mean, the church probably was very proud of the fact that they had converted a Muslim, and so they wanted to make sure people knew about it. Right. Um, well, they dismissed the uh, the court allegations. It's the first time that a case in the United States in which the court has affirmed that how a church conducts its baptisms is only the business of the church and not subject to interference by civil courts, which that's a good thing. But I think the church could have handled it better. Well, if he asked them Definitely. to you know, keep it quiet, maybe not putting it on the internet would <laughs> that, have been a good idea. That's a great idea. And then once that happened, maybe... Loving that man, taking him and going, all right, we'll give you the money. Yeah. Which is kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. I I think that they could have done any kind of restitution other than taking it to law and taking it to court. Yeah. So anyways, that's a shocking thing to me. Uh, China kicks out Korean missionaries in unprecedented uh, numbers. The past few months, China has experienced... Dozens of South Korean missionaries from Jilin, a northeastern province that neighbors North Korea. News media reported the raids, which estimated the total expulsions ranging from 30 to 70. Wow. Hmm. It's crazy. Chinese authorities raided the homes of the missionaries, citing a problem with their visas, and told them to leave. One human rights activist and pastor told uh, the AFP, the Associated France Press, um... He said that most were on uh, tourist or student visas. It was very exceptional, one anonymous source told the uh, Financial Times. The missionaries were keeping a low profile. In the past, most missionaries were given a month to leave since their activities in China were not harming the country. This time it was different. So I guess they're really getting serious about kicking out Christian missionaries from China, which is not shocking. Well, yeah... 
you hear all kinds of conflicting ideas about that. I mean, we know missionaries in China. In China, that, it's sporadic. Yeah, where it depends. where there are people that are completely unpersecuted, completely. Right. But then you hear about this, you know, another section or whatever, or where they just they can't meet at all. Yeah, without being persecuted. It's crazy. So. Um. Compassion International has been officially kicked out of India. Uh, we we yeah, broke we, this we story that. a while back. We broke it, yeah. Well, we yeah, we broke the story. <laughs> we told you about the story a while back, but now, and they were fighting it, now mm-hmm. it's official. After 48 years of providing education, scholarships, meals, medical care for children in India, Compassion, Compassion International will be forced to close its doors as a result of the country's crackdown on foreign aid. In December, Compassion went before the House of Foreign Affairs Committee, that's when we talked about it, to discuss some of the obstacles they had been facing while serving children in India, the largest problem being that the government's regulations in India would ultimately force the organization out of the country as a result of a lack of (coughs) access to funds. At the time, the charity had reason to believe they were being forced out as a result of Compassion's Christian affiliation. The organization's lawyer even told officials, what we're experiencing is an unprecedented, highly coordinated, deliberate, and systematic attack intended to drive us out. New York Times backed up these claims in a recent report, saying the shutdown of the charity on suspicion of engaging in religious uh, conversion comes as India, a rising economic power with a swelling spirit of nationalism, curtails the flow of foreign money to activities it deemed detrimental to the national interests. Since being asked to shut down their operations last week, Compassion's employees have cleared out four of the nine rented rooms and 250 children have been told not to return. Wow. That's a bummer. Mm -hmm. I I wonder what India has against them. Like, are they... So just because they're a Christian organization, that's that article is kind of ambiguous. Well, it said that uh, I think they're Christian and they're foreign. So why w- why would you not want foreign money? India wants to help itself, I guess. They're uh, hmm. a rise of nationalism, and you know. Yeah, from what I understand, India is a very political. I mean, like politically charged. There's tons of of caste and. Oh yeah, stuff like that, and so the language alone is like there's so many different language uh, dialects in India that even going there ministering is hard because you don't know what language you're even speaking. Yeah, so. it's crazy. All right, let's hop in our TARDIS. Oh, let me find the button. There it is. I need to control the volume on that one. <laughs> Take it down a notch. We'll just see if we can rake everybody's ears really hard. <laughs> Today, you say, well, he may never come back. Well, he ain't here now. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe he used that. Did you see that video I posted? Can you believe that that guy was? Oh my goodness, this was the one I meant to push. Oh, people, I'm talking. Hey, 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 don't, don't, don't you lay your head back. I, I'm, I'm important. <laughs> All right, I'm just gonna read this to you. Dante Banished wrote the Divine Comedy today. Oh, yeah, yeah. For Dante, political failure was costly. A white in the internal struggles of Florence, he became one of the city's six priors. Disturbances broke out with the blacks. The even-handed priors expelled the worst blacks and whites. The Pope, dependent church members, I have. <laughs> You're not worth 15 cents. Really? <laughs> Stop it. I'm trying to read here. 
the Pope, dependent on black money, excommunicated the city unless it should restore the troublesome blacks. So that's what the Pope was actually saying was... You're one of the sorriest church members I have. <laughs> You're not worth 15 cents. <laughs> the banishment was deeply d- distressing to Dante. Emotionally, it took him years to accept what had happened. He never saw his wife again, although some of his children visited him shortly before his death. In exile, Dante solaced himself with writing. One book defended the use of the Italian language over Latin. He produced a series of poems called Convivo, which means banquet. Uh, In a a treatise, he argued for separation of church and state. Through letters, he sought to influence the Florentine politics. The collapse of his political hopes led him to stake his chance in in restoration on one last great work. That ended up being the Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy. Yep. Awesome. Interesting. That's all I got. Oh, that's all you got. Yeah. Do you have any uh, feedback or anything? Nope. No feedback this time. Come on. Leave us some feedback. What's the matter with you people? You're one of the sorriest church members we got. You're one of the sorriest church members I have. You're not worth 15 cents. <laughs> 15 you cents? You might do your English teacher that way. But I'm not teaching English. I'm teaching eternal life here. I love you. You know I love you. Like- <laughs> He's not teaching English, Jeremiah. He's teaching eternal life. I love you. You know I love you, right? That's the Stand reason up, I'm calling boy. you out in front of everybody here. Stand up, big boy. I don't know why you're marrying him. <laughs> so great. That's horrible, actually. All right, you ready to get out Yeah, of let's do it. <laughs> the Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network using new media and social networking to go in all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, go to gctnetwork.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and stay up to date with all our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema and the Secret Fire Podcast. Visit our website at Theonautical... Uh, Theonautical? Wow. Theonautspodcast.com for show notes and outlines. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher. And be sure to rate us because that helps us reach a larger audience. There are several ways you can contact us and leave us feedback. Send us email to theonauts at gctnetwork.com or call us on our voicemail line at 972-885-7270. Tweetily deedily deed to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook using facebook.com slash Theonauts. If you like us and want even more Theonauts, drop us a buck or two at patreon.com slash Theonauts. Your patronage helps in our expenses like hosting fees and equipment costs. Don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's diddly word with us. All right, Jeremiah and Riley, thanks for being here, guys. Bye. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. (laughs) Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, David, give me a waffle. Welcome to the GCT (laughs) Network. This is your great commission. This is your great commission transmission. At gctnetwork.com. Me. All you got to do is tell me we won't have a church fight because I'll get my little Connie and we'll get in her little Buick Enclave. It's paid for and we'll sell what we need to sell and we'll go on down the road and we'll find some little podunk <laughs> church that don't know up from down and I'll find me a dozen Joe's baskets who don't have a pot or a window and who will shout Jesus and I'll give the rest of my life to them.